and welcome to the Ballot Box global election coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besserer in New York City. This week, we're tackling three elections. We've got Mongolia of the presidential elections, um, presidential elections also in Iran, and then the parliamentary elections in Armenia. Um, so it's going to be... Um, a, a very packed episode, but hopefully a very interesting one as well. But before we dig into those three, um, how's everyone been since um, since the last last time we met? I've been I've been having fun in New York City, seeing all the advertisements and campaigning for the um, for the for the New York City mayor mayor's primary, the Democratic primary, of which we will definitely have to talk about. It's been it's been fascinating see, seeing that here in the city. How about you, Chris? Yeah, uh, for those who don't know, Andreas has just moved from Mexico to New York. So that's why. <laughs> Back again. <laughs> um, I am very good. I had a lovely holiday in the northeast of England over the last week. Um, started off in York, uh, went up to Newcastle, and. Um, and went across into the Scottish border briefly to see some seals. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and went to Lindisfarne, Holy Island, and had a lovely time in the northeast. Highly recommend it. I've never, never been that far northeast in England before because I grew up <laughs> on the south coast. Um, but yes, highly recommend it to any British listeners thinking about a staycation, um, given that we're probably not going to be able to travel abroad mm-hmm. this year, this summer. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris, I think I'm going to disagree because I'm in very much in the camp that the staycation means in your house. Well, fair, and... fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I, I don't really care. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not particularly bothered. I don't know if you won't have noticed this, Andreas, probably, but there has been a raging debate in the UK over the past year. Um, now that people can't really go abroad, about what exactly a staycation means, yeah. whether it is a holiday in the UK or whether it is when you just take some time off from work at your own home. Which I think just right. proves the point. I had... We've be, all been locked inside our houses for far too long. <laughs> I had heard that a sta- see my my understanding of a staycation is that you are at least in the same city you live in. Mm. You just kind of like rent a hotel room, like somewhere downtown. Oh, or... that's a third option, a third way, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I've um, yeah, I've been I've been all right, not been anywhere exciting. Um, I have been vaccinated, um, which I. Andres has been as well um but yeah but apart from that just um enjoying summer in London um as although it is yeah it, it's it's now returned to its typical kind of drizzly self for, for the weekend but still still nice okay so I think we're going to take these um these elections in in chronological order um so we're going to start with with Mongolia um we'll say it to all of the people out there incredibly keen for the French regional elections coverage. Um, it is coming. We're just waiting for both rounds to be to be complete. Um, so look out for that one next week. Um, but yeah, we'll start off with with Mongolia. And I think um, I think you've been reading all about this one, Chris. So why don't you just kind of tell us um, yeah, briefly, briefly what's what's happened? What are the kind of headlines from this one? So basically, um... It's been an absolute landslide victory for the Mongolian People's Party. Um, the 
oldest party in Mongolia, um, which um, formerly ran Mongolia as a communist state, um, but which is, um, now exists as kind of one of the two major parties within um, w- within a, a surprisingly um, a, a surprisingly embedded democracy. Um, this has led to some fears because the size of the landslide is the biggest in Mongolia's democratic history. Um, they won at the candidate for the People's Party won about seventy two percent of the vote um, when you when you discount blank blank ballots, um, um, and it's also heralded a truly terrible result for their chief opponents, the Democratic Party, whose candidate won only 6% of the vote. Um, And in between that, a third party candidate got about 20% of the vote. Um, So it seems that party system change may be afoot in Mongolia. Um, It's also, um, there's also now but both these parties, both the main two parties have been accused in recent years of undermining Mongolia's democracy, um, which not um, credibly um, in both cases, I would say. So, yeah, there's some fears about kind of potential authoritarianism coming down the line, which I think are probably overstated given the nature of these two parties. So we normally do on the ballot box we'll start by going um over what the constitutional setup is um as far as i gather these the presidential elections possibly not quite as important as the parliamentary elections am I yes right saying in mongolia yeah but still pretty important uh, i would say um so um mongolia is set up as a semi-presidential regime um where the which is kind of weighted towards the legislature um but the presidency still has a lot of important powers so for example they wield a veto which can be overridden by two-thirds um of of the great corral the um, parliament um uh, they also um, control the armed forces. They have powers over the judiciary. Um, uh, but basically, the reasoning for this is, uh, so as I said, Mongolia was a communist regime in, in many fashions, the first satellite state of the Soviet Union. So Mongolia became communist in 1921. Obviously, because of its location, it's wedged between two great powers, despite being... Uh, and is therefore a app, but is itself, although geographically very large, has quite a small population. It's a country that's about three times the size of France, but has a population of only three million. Um, so uh, obviously for that reason, its politics are often defined to a large extent by external relations because of the fact that it borders China and Russia. Um, um, so uh, the communist regime was um, was in many ways seen as kind of a puppet state. They had kind of a very centralized regime into a couple of particular figures 
who were often very slavishly loyal to um, the Soviet Union. And for that reason, Mongolians generally see the communist regime not as a period of party rule, so much as a period of kind of one-man dictatorship. So the Mongolian constitution was set up with a kind of design of creating a number of veto players within the system to um, stop there from being one person rule, basically on the logic that one person could become um, could become too loyal to one of the neighboring states. It could, it could become a puppet very easily. Um, so obviously that meant a rejection of presidentialism, but it also meant a rejection of pure parliamentarism on the basis that obviously, as we know, pure parliamentary regimes can become, uh, can become um, dominated by one figure as well. So hence you've got this system which is where the parliament is very powerful, but the president has a number of kind of veto functions to act as a check on the, over, on the system overall. So yeah, that's, and so that's kind of telling about why um, this moment where one party seems to be consolidating all power behind it is um, suddenly causing some fears amongst outside observers and some people within Mongolia as well. Mongolia is sometimes thought as a democratic exception or, ex yes. you know, um, yeah. given its geography and other conditions. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I think that, that would also be really interesting for, for yeah, listeners. Yeah, because basically Mongolia is a, a kind of deviant case in that it basically runs against most democratization theory. Like uh, Mongolia, when it became independent, when sorry, Mongolia, when the when the communist regime fell, um, was a country that was very poor. The average earnings were only about five hundred dollars a year. Um, it was it had a fairly high literacy rate, but um, the economy was not modernized in in many ways. I mean, it's still a country for example, where around a quarter of people are still nomadic herders. Um, it's um, it's um, got a very sizable number of resources, albeit those have been exploited, particularly over the last 10, 20 years. It's experiencing a resource boom right now, but that was not such, so much a major part of the economy then. Um, it's also, um, and it's also geographically distant from other democracies uh, it's not uh, you know one of the kind of you know when we explain why for example romania is a democracy when which also has a lot of similar features we say oh one of the reasons is because it's close to other democracies and that allows for kind of democratic contagion um but um so yeah mongolia is a deviant case in a whole bunch of ways and it's kind of really interesting that um, this quite small country wedged between these two very powerful authoritarian states has ended up with a, a with a pretty impressive democracy it's it's basically the most democratic um, former communist state east of east of Romania really <laughs> I often sometimes wonder whether it is partially because of that position of being wedged between the two sort of mm. great autocratic powers has meant that it's been able to 
survive as a democracy because yeah. they both kind of have this sort of thing of like, well, neither of us will have it in a sort of way. And so that they don't, neither of them um, kind of operate um, much yeah. influence over it because because of Russia and China having this kind of strange, well, they're not um, sort of mm. sort of being allies, but at the same time, obviously having some small level of competition that, that yeah. they prefer the status quo on that. Yeah, and there's definitely something in it being so small as well, both in terms of the small population um, allows it to escape interest more than perhaps other country, a larger country might. But also in terms of things like, for example, it has quite a small self-contained elite that all know each other. Um, so um, and many of them have, for example, um, gone off to study in the West and then come back and brought ideas back with them. Or um, it, you know, it, you know um, it, and there's a kind of very, it, some of the theories around why Mongolia are a, it, why Mongolia is a democracy get quite essentialist. But um, things like um, it's something to do with Buddhism, which I mean, there's plenty of countries in the world which are Buddhist, <laughs> which aren't democratic. Um, uh, uh, but the country is, uh, yeah, it, I think probably there's something to do with the structure of elites in Mongolia is a large part of it. The fact that, for example, Mongolian elites tend to move away from violence against each other quite often. The fact that Mongolian elites um, are, you know, know each other so well. The fact that the these two parties, the Democratic Party and the People's Party, are incredibly factionalized in and of themselves, which means that, you know, w within the parties, there's pressure against a one-party dictatorship as well because they're afraid that the wrong faction will be the one that ends up with the power. Um, you know, all those elements, I think, are probably contributing quite a lot to Mongolia's democratization. So, so you already mentioned that the constitutional setup was a semi-presidential system with some important mm. powers reserved for the president. Yes. Um, and in your notes, I have the advantage of peeking into <laughs> the, the brilliant mind of Chris Terry through his through reading his notes you 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 link the um, the constitutional choice of a semi-presidential system to the recent history of Mongolia and I thought that, yeah. that was really fascinating and yeah you, you want to share that yeah yeah I mean it's I, I kind of briefly alluded to this earlier but um yes I I think basically the fear of one man power concentrating in one man uh, has caused that choice. Uh, caused that choice, but both in terms of um, dismissing a presidential model, where obviously one man would be the system, um, and a parliamentary system, where you know, uh, you know uh, countries like the UK, for example, are very aware that par parliamentary democracy does not necessarily mean that um, things don't become focused into the hands of one person. Um, particularly because Mongolia has tended to have very majoritarian electoral systems. Right now it's a block voting system and the People's Party controls um, a sizable supermajority within the legislature. 
Um, so that that factionalization within the parties is certainly acting as a check upon them. So yeah, who who are these um, the two main? I mean, we've we've referenced them um, several times already, but maybe useful just going quickly over who the, the what the two main parties are because that's another feature of of Mongolia is that it does have a. A reasonably neat sort of two-party system in some ways. Yes, I know there are and, other players, and, but two, two main ones definitely. And quite deeply, uh, quite deep parties as well. Like they have fairly sizable memberships for a country of its size as well. So they they are certainly institutionalized in ways that um, are, are unusual. So um, as I said, the People's Party, um, previously known as the People's Revolutionary Party um, is uh, is the former communist um, party of Mongolia. Uh, now professes itself to be a social democratic party, um, it, and and uh, ideologically, particularly, um, uh, particularly after the fall of communism, it, it did um, act very much as a social democratic party in some ways. It, it certainly professed a large amount of concern of the poor it has a a um, quite a lot of support in rural areas in particular typically um but the um uh, and uh it's a kind of pretty but uh, has been seen to move to the center and from an early period it became it was quite pragmatic so for example it won the first elections after after multi-party elections were introduced. But unlike some um, post-communist parties in Europe, for instance, uh, for example, in Romania and Bulgaria, they actually went pretty hard on privatization pretty early on um, and, um, and, and real kind of reforms to the economy to move towards a more capitalist model. Um, in part, this is because of the role of foreign aid in Mongolia, which is quite a major element of politics in that period but yes and unless then the democratic party on the other hand is um is a party that is essentially formed out of a mix of elements so it actually congealed into a party officially quite late um it was originally a kind of coalition of parties but most of those are to do with um most of those were to um, most of those were coming out of the protest movements were, were protesting against communism um, in the 1990s. Um, their former leader and um, the president before the, the um, uh, president before last um, was a was one of the major protesters in the in the 1989 in protests against the communist regime um so uh, but it's a very broad party and even more so than the people's party which is itself quite factionalized um it's been described as being more of a clientless party than a programmatic party because of how broad and factionalized it is um it, it features some um less savory elements but um, it also features. It's also featured in the past um, some extremely moderate um, elements, um, such as the um, such as the former Social Democratic Party, which merged into it, 
um, which has now re-emerged, um, formed a kind of very consensual elite academic part of the party, which um, was very socially liberal, economically moderate, um, and, 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 uh, and played an important role in the party. So yeah, it's an incredibly broad organization, but yes, with um, but um, and and primarily unified by opposition to the People's Party is <laughs> um, the kind of thing that's kind of driven it for most of its history. Okay, so what what was the background specifically to to this election? Um, what were the kind of what were the what were the main issues at stake here? Who were the main candidates? So um, yeah, this is it's been a a chaotic what, five years in one go. So 2016, the People's Party won a landslide um, victory, um, and the and so it looked like the People's the Democratic Party was really on the back foot. Um, and then surprisingly, they won the 2017 elections, um, the 2017 presidential election, with a very controversial president who's been compared to um, to uh, Trump and to Putin, very macho populist president. He's a former wrestler. He um, was very controversial within the party itself. His predecessor as president um, distanced himself from him. And he then claimed in the election campaign that he and the People's Party were teaming up to um, to undermine him and defeat him as part of a conspiracy. Um, all sorts of lovely stuff. A real delightful guy. Um, so he 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 won surprisingly against the kind of splintered popular um, a splintered um, opposition in 2017. Also, because the People's Party candidate um, was associated with corruption. Um, in office, he and the parliamentary majority for the People's Party have had a kind of odd relationship in that, um, so for example, the People's Party passed a bunch of um, a change to anti corruption laws, which made it so that the president could fire. Um, judges and um, anti-corruption investigators, <laughs> which is an odd thing to give to your opponent. <laughs> um, uh, and it's certainly an element of the fact that both these parties have, both these parties and the president have been mired in corruption to some extent. Interestingly, the Democratic Party actually opposed this and it seems that there was um, a lot of deal making between the president and the People's Party. Um, but um, then coming then coming off the back of that, um, we then also had a reversal in that the People's Party forced through using its parliamentary supermajority, which is um, veto proof, a um, constitutional change which um, weakened the president's powers in other areas, um, made it so that it could only serve one term, but that that term would be six years rather than four years. Um, so the, um, uh, which the Supreme Court 
ruled applied to the incumbent president so that he would only serve a single four-year term, <laughs> which obviously annoyed him. So in April, he tried to disband the People's Party using an emergency degree. <laughs> um, basically, the courts and all the other institutions decided that they weren't going to bother implementing this. Um, but that kind of is telling about how, um, how rotten things had gotten. Um, and yeah, and as you can see, there's that basically the the view in Mongolian civil society and amongst observers now is that these two parties are now pointing at each other and going, "You've undermined democracy," and that on a certain level, both of them are right. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it's a a something of a tremendous um, mess. Now, the winner of the election, um, I'm going to try and pronounce his name right, but uh, apologies, because I probably won't. Uknegin um, 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 was the prime minister until January, and he resigned because of um, anti-COVID protests, uh, because of COVID protests, but essentially Mongolia has handled COVID pretty badly. Um, but... The resignation was fairly obviously a ploy because he then announced he was running for president a couple of weeks later. <laughs> um, so he's obviously to some extent running on his record. He um, is seen as kind of being um, a being anti-corruption. He fired a bunch of people from his cabinet who um, were considered to be from corrupt parts of the People's Party. Um, he almost lost a vote of no confidence in, in the parliament over that. Um, but um, he's also a very successful political operator. Um, but obviously he's connected to a party which people broadly see as having corrupt, within people within civil society broadly see as having corrupt elements. The fact that he's so popular is in some ways a bit frightening to certain elements of People's Party and the um, and the opposition. The fact that the Democratic Party's campaign this election used the slogan "Mongolia without dictatorship," I think, is telling. Like they're worried that because he's because of his position, he represents a threat to democracy in Mongolia. I think this is probably overblown because, for example, Mongolia has very good press freedoms has um, a uh, and as I say like the People's Party is pretty factionalized albeit not as factionalized as the Democratic Party um, which I think would act as a check and because the president's because the president is not the head of government the prime minister is the head of government <laughs> um, but still, this is going to be the first bout of kind of unified government um, in quite some time. And it's going to be the and basically no party has been in this position since around about 2000, when the Democratic Party kind of the first just after the first Democratic Party government, which was very chaotic. Um, the People's Party had a similar position. Um, so the 
Democratic Party ran um, it, it ran its party leader, who, as I understand it, is very unpopular. Um, he, um, as I say here, uh, as I said at the start of this, he only won six percent of the vote. Um, it seems like a lot of Democratic Party supporters were voting, uh, were were voting blank ballot, um, but and turnout was also fairly low as well, which may also um, be part of it. But I think the real kind of interesting result of the election is the um, third party candidate, um, Danga Surengilin. <laughs> <laughs> which apologies to <laughs> for that but um basically he um is he was supported by the social democratic party which has re-emerged out of the democratic party's left flank um it's part of a coalition called the right person electorate coalition which i'm sure is a lot it sounds a lot better in Mongolian. But um, basically, right person in this is a is not saying he, they're right wing. It's saying that they want the correct person, <laughs> the correct person for every position. Somebody who's not corrupt is essentially is essentially the suggestion, as I understand it. And he is a um, tech CEO. He um, uh, he's also a scholar. Um, I've read I read an interview of him um, briefly where he's clearly very intelligent. He's got some fairly sophisticated thoughts about the Mongolian political system. So you can see that he was basically the candidate of uh, the intelligentsia in Mongolia. So he um, he got big support on social media. He got a lot of support amongst the expat population. He got, um, and he also um, did pretty well in the cities, particularly Ulaanbaatar. Um, so he won 20.3% of the vote. So presumably that's where, also where a lot of Democratic Party votes went. And I kind of wonder if this potentially represents party system change in Mongolia, whether um, after having this, whether the Democratic Party has now kind of run out of steam, um, the party's remaining factions are too embittered by infighting, whether this um, bout of kind of Trumpian, of kind of populist, um, uh, whether having a populist president from the party has, has damaged the party permanently. Or it may just be a blip um and the party kind of made like put itself back together again um and having this division between on the center right if it continues is is going to be a major problem um for the opposition to the people's party so they're going to have to work out something um is my other big take here <laughs> so yeah it's um it's been an interesting election i think it puts puts mongolia into a very interesting moment in time i think it's an understudied country and we should probably um study it more okay, okay. all right we will move south and west 
and head towards Iran. The and... other the other end of Asia, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, and this this one I don't think we'll spend quite as long as, as the other two on it because as as everyone will probably be abundantly aware this is not happening in a democratic context. But it's it's worth mentioning because Iran has such a kind of institute in, interesting um, institutional design, which is fairly unique among um, mm. authoritarian um, authoritarian systems. Um, these elections were to the the presidency, which is one of um, Iran's kind of democratic institutions, but. Um, democratic quote, and inverted quote, commas. Yes, quote, quote, democratic <laughs> institutions, yes. Um, but yeah, as as they called them, as it's called in Iran, there is the the democratic institutions, and then there is a whole set of kind of more religious institutions as well, um, mm. which um, provide some oversight, I guess, over the over these the functioning of the of the democratic institutions. Um, so yeah, so what was um, I don't know, do you want to? Go for this as well, oh, well Chris. Um, yeah, give a shot sure. at explaining how this all works. So, um, so yeah. Do you want to start with headlines, or shall I start talking about the bizarre system? Um, maybe we can we can cover the bizarre system and then just the results very quickly after. Okay. <laughs> so Iran is very weird. <laughs> so, um, but basically, after after the Islamic Revolution. You have a, um, as Jonathan said, a series of um, of institutions which are clerically based. The most powerful of which is the supreme leader, um, who is currently Ayatollah Khomeini, um, who and uh, um, supreme leader has a number of very strong powers. He can issue decrees which um, can have huge weight within the political system, has control over the judiciary, the armed forces. Um, it, the um, Supreme Leader also appoints half of the Guardian Council, which is an incredibly powerful institution because it vets and vetoes candidates for office. Um, so for example, in this election, around more than 600 candidates applied for elected to run in the election. Um, seven passed through the Guardian Council and three of those withdrew. Um, so, uh, and yeah, many of those people are people of very high standing, who are very, very large name, people who would presumably be potentially able to gather large numbers of votes, um, including possibly the um, most popular candidate, um, the former president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who, um, you know, in context like Iran, it's hard to know how much to trust polling, but there was polling beforehand which suggested he was the most popular candidate. Um, so, um, so um, so yes, so you got, um, then within that, the supreme leader also appoints some members of the cabinet and can remove others. 
so for example the defense minister is appointed by the supreme leader that said the democratic institutions do have some real power the president and the um cabinet and the president appoints um cabinet members um the parliament um has uh, approval over them uh, obviously laws are supposed to pass through parliament although decrees can override that process um, but obviously elections are massively constrained by the Guardian Council's vetoing of candidates for election. Um, and to some extent, it's almost kind of a surprise that there are multiple candidates allowed to run at all. Um, certainly at one, uh, early on in the revolution, it was clearly planned that that Iran would become a one-party state under a party called the Islamic Republican Party, uh, but it fell apart because it was too broad, essentially, um, because this is a theocratic regime ruled by clerics, and Iranian clerics are, in and of themselves, incredibly diverse bunch. Um, you know, so some of the most reformist politicians in Iran are clerics <laughs> like, and actually at, at Medijad as the as possibly the most uh, radical conservative president at the time um, was actually a rarity as a president because he wasn't a cleric <laughs> and all the, all the others have, have been um, so that's a kind of good reminder uh, at that this is a it's a very broad uh, brush um, regime, which to some extent is trying to manage itself. Um, there's a kind of interesting thing going on right now in Iran, which is that Khomeini is 82 years old. Um, the Supreme Leader serves for life, but obviously at 82, we're probably closer to the end of that period than we are to the beginning of that. Um, so there's a lot of this discussion going on about what happens when when Khomeini passes. Um, it, you know, there was some talk about um, essentially the second most powerful person in Iran, um, Suleiman, um, possibly taking over, having having a huge amount of sway in the system. Um, he he was the head of the Republican Guard. Um, he was assassinated by the US last year. Um, so that obviously put pay to that. Um, the, um, and so, and um, also, we also have, have a period where Khomeini seems to be trying to institutionalize his power more. He seems to be, um, the Guardian Council has upped its vetoing of candidates and has only one reformist was, for example, allowed to run in this election, who was a very weak reformist. Um, the Guardian Council was also very active in the last um, parliamentary elections, even by the usual standards. Um, and the candidate who has won here is a Khomeini protege. So it's probably worth it. So it's probably the case that he's basically gotten what he wanted. <laughs> um, so, yeah. <laughs> so j just to kind of 
I mean, just to touch upon what I think is probably the, the most interesting thing about, or not, I don't know, the most interesting thing, but an interesting aspect of the system. And the reason why we're talking about it today is that citizens actually do get to elect in fairly competitive elections, the mm. president, the parliament, and the assembly of experts. Yes. But the choice of candidates is limited by a series of unelected institutions mm. headed by the Supreme Leader, Khamenei. Um, but, but there's like, so, um, so, so citizens do actually, I mean, votes do matter, right? They just don't yes. matter in a way that's determinant. Like, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the, of, yeah. And, and of course, we should reference the fact that the election in 2009 was credibly accused of being rigged, um, which, of course, unleashed the Green Movement, which many people will probably remember the gigantic protests that happened that year. But broadly speaking, there is some exchange of actual views in elections and there is some degree of competition. It's just competition that is obviously very much limited within what the Guardian Council and what Khomeini will allow. Yeah. <sighs> this is a great moment to kind of reflect on uh, an idea that's well captured by an expert in the, on the Middle East called Lisa Anderson, who wrote an essay on how political science tends to uh, view See, see varieties in democracy, but then see all authoritarianism as basically a black mm. box that's kind of all works in the same way. And she says that that's the kind of way of being um, pre, pre-Copernican in the sense of this gets kind of the wrong paradigm. And no matter how much uh, resources or brain power you throw at, at, at a wrong paradigm, it just won't come up with like interesting or, or kind of like scientifically valid truths, right? So she said, we have to start thinking of authoritarianism as a really varied, it's, it, under that umbrella, there's really varied systems and yeah. it runs quite like the-, and, the and I would say, yeah, and I would say increasingly varied systems as well. Like m- most authoritarian regimes in the world are now, to some extent, pretending to be a democracy, <laughs> I would say. Like, yeah. if you think about, like, you know, like Russia is an obvious example, and that's a kind of fairly prototypical example in that there are multiple political parties. Right. There are clearly elections happening, but they are, to some extent, rigged. Right. <laughs> yeah. Rigged or, or limited in their scope. Like, they're being yes. constrained such that the vote is not determinant of the direction of the, the country takes. But yeah. it's still... I, I was speaking to a really brilliant Iranian student in my program. And, you know, she said that one of the functions that elections have in Iran is they do create the possibility of limiting political conflict. So political conflict happens in campaigns and then it's kind of like, you know, the poll, the polls allow for competing factions within you know, factions who are still loyal to the Iranian revolution, but they might have different like policy views or slightly different ideological views within this tent of, of the Iranian revolution. Um, going, to, going to the polls helps limit, uh, not, not allow, the, you know, limits conflict from, from, prevents conflict from spilling over 
onto the streets. Um, and so different factions can resolve their disputes through, through having, you know, through, through, through elections. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's so and this is kind of an interesting thing now of um, since 1997, 1997, Iran elected its first kind of truly reformist president in Katame. And um, Katame, Katame um, was generally at the end of his term considered to be something of a failure because he was obviously hemmed in by the system. And then they elected Ahmadinejad with, you know, everything that came with him. Um, and then, um, you know, the Green Revolution happened. So um, they elected a, a moderate with support of the reformists um, in Rouhani. And then once again, Rouhani has ended up in the end being seen as a kind of disappointment and um, a... a uh, um, and, and certainly we can see elements of kind of clear alienation in this election. He's, he's term limited for this, for this election, but obviously the, 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 the mark of kind of all the stuff that's been bottled up in his presidency has kind of come out. In terms of, for example, low turnout, there's a very high number of bank, blank ballots. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, I, I think it's clearly the case that um that while that's true to some extent it's also the case that the supreme leader is using elections to try and get the kind of end point that he wants at any given point <laughs> yeah just one final thing about that um and 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 i mean i i i really like jennifer gandhi's work on authoritarian institutions and her point is that if there's a degree, if, if you include, if authoritarian regimes are able to successfully integrate elections within very constrained bounds, they tend to last longer. They tend to be more stable authoritarian systems mm. than ones that have that aren't able to integrate elections. And, and I think Iran's a good kind of case where you can see why elections can be like the source of stability in the long, in the long run, even if there is localized instability in each electoral cycle kind of overall creates um more yeah. um yeah. more stability um yeah. and 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 obviously like these elections don't they wouldn't be considered democratic because they're highly vetted from the beginning so like yeah. it, would, it wouldn't fulfill jaworski's notion of like elected offices which are um kind of like uh truly uh, truly representative of a degree of like political uh, supply, right? Mm -hmm. Political supply uh, is, is highly constrained, yeah. Yeah, but there's an obvious input into the system from, from, from people. Albeit, I, I think this election may be an interesting case of like, I mean, the turnout is below 50%. Um, which is the first time that's ever happened in an Iranian election. Um, it, the 14.4 million blank ballots were cast. So what was that? Right, I might check that again. <laughs> what did I get? So 14.4% blank ballots were cast. <laughs> um, about 4 million blank ballots in total, which means that blank ballots actually came second 
um, before any of the um, opposition candidates to the winner. Um, so, um, so yeah, it feels like alienation from the regime is particularly is showing itself in this particular case. Um, and that 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 seems to be in part because um, Khomeini was clearly very much very much desiring to get Asari. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced. Sorry, Razor, Razor who's the um, who's a former protege of his, and who will be the kind of who is the kind of closest president to him essentially since the early 90s, because even Ahmadinejad, while he was a, a conservative and or a principalist or whatever you want to call um, people who support the, support the regime, uh, was from a very different um, type of ideological um, grouping to, to Khomeini. Um, so he's, I, I, my, my sense of this is in some way is that Khomeini is trying to consolidate power so that he can prepare for what comes next, whatever that is, possibly, possibly make constitutional changes to um, try and keep the Islamic Republic going. There's some um, suggestion that, for example, the position of president might just be abolished because fights between the president and the supreme leader have been a kind of consistent theme of the last two decades. And maybe it's, and so therefore he might try to, to kind of shift towards a parliamentary regime in the democratic sphere. Um, so yeah, um, so it's it, it, it'll be interesting watching what happens to Iran in terms of regime type over the next presidential term. Right. So now we're heading to Armenia, which is a relatively small but very interesting country, and we have uh, well, Johnny obviously knows quite a lot about Armenia, and so does Chris who was a, an electoral observer once in, in Armenia. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I don't think two weeks of watching votes being <laughs> it really makes me an expert in Armenia, but it means obviously I've had some, some um, on the ground experience, which is rare for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, what, is the, what is the constitutional setup of Armenia? Is it a parliamentary or presidential system? Mm. So it is, it is now, and not for very many years, a parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. uh, previously, it had very typical post-Soviet semi-presidential um, design. Um, however, following a referendum in 2015, they have, um, there's still a president, but it's been moved to one that's indirectly elected by parliament, and it's now a, a almost entirely ceremonial um, mm -hmm. position. Um, and now, yeah, it's, it's a fairly a fairly straightforward um, parliamentary system. Um, there's a there's a, a national assembly of 101 members, um, which is generally elected sort of just through party lists. Although there is a few sort of weird little features quirks with the electoral system um, in terms of there are there are caps, so no party can win more than two thirds of the seats. There's um, and then there's a also a a theoretical second round that could happen 
if a new government is not formed following elections um, yeah. they will they will hold a round between the, the the top two parties to give them a bonus seats to make a majority um but yeah you, you say you say theoretical because that's that hasn't happened since the 2015 referendum it hasn't happened because the I, I think Last, that yeah. I, I think that stipulation was only introduced for this election, actually. So because um, last time um, the civil contract party won seventy two percent of the vote and got that number of seats, so so I think the uh, new caps and so on are, mm. are possibly a a reaction to the fact that they got that very large super majority last time around. Yes, yeah, that is <laughs> something we'll probably mention later. Is the yeah, the last election one party won in pretty democratic conditions, seventy percent of the vote, quite literally. Yeah, um, which is something. Yeah, this time they did not win seventy percent of the vote, but this, the headline is that Prime Minister um, Nicole Pashinyan has uh, won a by the elections quite comfortably and by a larger margin than was was expected, mm-hmm. and has still won. Um, over half the popular vote as well, um, despite polls indicating that this might be a bit more of a close run contest. Um, yeah, he seems to have, have come out of this um, with his domestic position pretty strengthened, given that it was looking fairly shaky beforehand as well, um, given the given the events of the past um, past year in Armenia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And what's what's the lead up? You know, what are the important events in the lead up to this election, and then kind of the the sort of uh, issues that were discussed. So I suppose there's the two main things that we you need to know to understand the election. Two main events in recent Armenian history. The first being the uh, the, the the Velvet Revolution, as it's been known um, in uh, 2018. Um, which which brought um, which brought Pashinyan to power in the first place, um, which was which was and we've already mentioned that Armenia has transitioned regime type, um, and, and and this transition obviously meant that the presidency became depowered and the prime ministership became um, kind of em- empowered by this, um, and the then president then president um, Sargisyan, um decided that he was going to, um, despite having promised not to, um, move from the presidency to the prime ministership, just allowing him to stay in power under the under the new system. Um, and him and his his Republican Party that've been in power for quite a while is widely regarded as as a very corrupt regime um, and. Um, it was Armenia was was tend to be seen as a as a kind of a semi authoritarian regime uh, under this at this point, um, mm. but there was there was about a month of protests um, which led which were on which Pashinyan um, who at the time had his party and had very few seats in parliament um, but they they came um, to kind of um, came to prominence in these protests and it ended with the 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 the. Um, Sargisyan's coalition partners deserted them, um, and the other parties in parliament um, voted to replace him with with Pashinyan, who then held these elections in which he won seventy percent of the vote, um, and which is, I think you might might say was a pretty clear mandate um, for him mm. um, from that one. And the Republican Party was was swept out of parliament uh, at this point. Um, but yeah, this this all so far. Um, so far, so good. This seemed like maybe 
uh, beginning of a kind of democratic track for for Armenia um, uh, and possibly one as well because of its sort of where Armenia I mean if you look on a map you will kind of figure out why this is but Armenia um, has very little choice but to have its key um, its key kind of allies as Russia and, and to a lesser extent Iran as well um, because it's sandwiched between two um, very hostile countries one of which is is very large in Turkey um, and it has yeah so it's had limited as limit more limited um, reasons to open and or opportunities to open to the west than um, Georgia has for instance and uh, but there was some sort of thought that maybe Pashinyan was going to be a bit more a bit more kind of even in Armenia's relations maybe open a bit more to Europe uh, but while still um, for security reasons preserving kind of Russian ties um, but yeah this is all kind of all kind of um, been everything's been changed by the by the war um, last year um, with Azerbaijan um, for those I mean we won't we'll try not to go into too much detail on this because we're not a kind of conflict podcast um but the obviously mm. I'm, I'm sure many people will be aware of the kind of broad strokes of what, what's going on in the in the region but there's this disputed territory which i suppose the the, the most neutral way to refer to it would be nagorno karabakh um mm. which is yeah it's just but it was a territory which it has um it had an armenian majority population but for um various reasons the soviets had placed it within the borders of azerbaijan as a kind of a quote-unquote autonomous entity um and this as we know there was not connect not contiguous with um armenia proper either um yes that there was a, a conflict over us in the in the early 90s as the soviet union um as the soviet union uh, dissolved um, starting really actually a bit before the Soviet Union dissolved as well, um, because there was a, a agitation for um, Nagorno-Karabakh to be uh, united with Armenia, um, which um, uh, sort of spiralled into ethnic conflict, which then spiralled into um, international conflict between the two states, um, which resulted in in Armenia um, in Armenia kind of uh, taking control over these um, the, of this territory, um, which was recognized well which was declared a a independent state um but it was incredibly closely linked to armenia in in most regards from this point on um mm. to the point in which um well one of the main contenders in this election which we'll talk about later um he started out his career as the president of nagorno karabakh before moving over to become the president of armenia um so this will probably give you some idea of how how kind of linked they were yeah um, and, and, and indeed indeed the republican party in many ways had its origins um well had it had its main growth in terms of the fact that its participation in the war as a kind of series of um, military units as well as a, a a political party, so yeah, it's a it's an odd beast, but yeah, damn. So yeah, that's kind of telling about kind of mm. what defined what has defined politics in Armenia for mm. essentially since this period. And so the, that's that status quo um, remained for twenty five years. Um, which yeah. Uh, uh, there was never a never a peace settlement really reached other than a kind mm. of ceasefire um yeah there was this, uh, yeah there was an amusing thing that um basically so like, 
Armenia, Azerbaijan is obviously a region of the world that not many countries have particular interest in. Um, so there was a kind of trouble getting UN peacekeepers involved. Um, then Russia said, hey, we'll peace do peacekeeping. And both of them just went, no, thank you. That's fine. We'll just peacekeep it ourselves. So it ended up being an incredibly dangerous border because mm. they, yeah, it was basically two sets of snipers pointing at each other mm. for quite a long period. Um, and about a good number of people would be shot across the border each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was very unstable. Yeah, yeah, and it's, um, there's repeated clashes. I mean, there were some reasonably serious ones in in 2016, but nothing that escalated into um, kind of full blown war until last year. Um, Azerbaijan, some many listeners might be aware, is um, possesses enormous reserves of oil, um, which mm. it has used to great effect to strengthen its military capacity. Um, it's well, also been benefited. It's also a, a larger country in population terms yes, as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, it has also benefited from uh, Turkey's new um, kind of more ad- aggressive and adventurous foreign policy. Um, Tur- mm. Turkish and Azeri are the almost identical languages and there is a sense of a kind of Turkic brotherhood between the two countries um, and uh, Turkey has closed its borders to Armenia ever since the fall of the Soviet Union because of this issue as well um, but it has now decided to more kind of overtly supply arms and has also sent in um, kind of has uh, it has in quite a few theatres at this point used um, Syrian rebel fighters as kind of proxy soldiers and sent them off to the conflict as well. Um, this has allowed Azerbaijan to launch this, um, launch a kind of an invasion last year, um, a largely successful one, which has meant that Armenia has lost control over most of the territory that it held prior to the war. And the mm-hmm. link between the two, uh, between um, Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh is now uh, controlled by the 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 final arrival of these Russian peacekeepers who now are in the in the region, um, Russia has helped kind of broker this this another new ceasefire, which is very much more on um, Azerbaijan's terms. Obviously, having presided over this defeat, there was now cause for Pashinyan to resign from large sections, um, including quite worryingly at one point from some some kind of top brass in the in the military. Um, mm. And there was there was there was protests on the street. There was counter protests by Pashinyan as well, who um, still retained a lot of support from this, um, especially because the the alternative um, seemed to be returned to the kind of um, corrupt kind of oligarchic rule which had preceded it as well. Um, but he did agree to uh, resign in order to hold early elections this year as well. So that we've ended up with these, with this um, fresh set of parliamentary elections um, coming up. Mm. Uh, fascinating. So just, just to kind of recap very quickly, within the period of the parliamentary system in Armenia, so since the 2015 referendum, we have the 2018 Velvet Revolution where Pashinyan, where Pashinyan's party has a prominent role in protests that that kind of changes the the, the and, and therefore leads to like a great victory of Pashinyan. But then a war occurs against the Azerbaijan that forces Pashinyan to resign early and hold elections. Yes, that's mm-hmm. yes. So so I guess these elections, like the election itself, 
I assume was very hotly contested, right? It was a very high stakes election in in lots mm-hmm. of ways. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And- yeah. And at least it is definitely so it appeared um, from the polling and stuff as well, which seems to suggest that there was <clears throat> there was um, forces emerging which could potentially topple Pashinyan. Um, so yeah, the, this this election was really weird in that basically everyone who had governed Armenia since independence threw their hat into the ring in this. So yeah, all of the former presidents um, led to varying degrees of success or were heavily involved to grow in um, new kind of electoral coalitions which competed in this mm-hmm. election. Um, the main, the largest one being this um, very inventively named Armenia Alliance, um, which was kind of formed to support um, Robert um, Kocharan, um, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that right, um, who was mm. the president um, of Armenia um, in the in the late 90s and, and, and early 2000s, um, who was um, before that um, the president of Nagorno-Karabakh and had this kind of, he'd been heavily involved in the first war and had this reputation as being very kind of tough on security and, and, and someone who could, um, and, and, and sort of they played to very sort of strong nationalist themes, also quite uh, reasonably like pro-Russian themes as well. Um, this mm-hmm. kind of like, because I think there is, there is some feeling among some in Armenia that Pashinyan's very, very slight turn away from Russia has, perhaps cost them valuable Russian support uh, when they needed it in the conflict as well. Um, and that is, he's, he's, um, he's teamed up with a couple of parties. One of the most notable is the, um, is the, is the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, which is an incredibly old party, um, which dates back from the kind of Ottoman period um, in Armenian history. Um, this, this pre obviously pre genocide served in briefly in Ottoman governments as well um it's to give you an idea of kind of how old it is it was involved in all of the kind of events of Armenia's uh, it governed Armenia in its first period of independence after the Russian revolution mm-hmm. um and is very very influential among the Armenia's very large diaspora as well um so this this party holds seats in the Lebanese parliament um as well where other countries where there's um large Armenian populations it's also very active um, including in the U.S. as well um, and uh, has had a it, it's it's emerged as a it's never achieved great electoral success in modern Armenian history but has has always been a kind of minor presence as well um, yeah and yeah and they, they kind of teamed up and very much supported uh, Kocharan in this election as well yep mm-hmm. And, and and how were the so that that's, this is kind of like the chessboard of the this particular election mm. and how were the how did the results turn out um so yeah this is to say there was um there was a there was a sense in the opinion polls that it was going to be it was a very close race between um Pashinyan's um of alliance and Gotcharan's alliance and that they would probably maybe get roughly the same amount of of seats and there was discussion of what the kind of other forces, because there was the, the old Republican Party. Um, it tried to stage, it teamed up with a, another kind of centre-right party and tried to stage a, a comeback as well. Um, it, it, it has regained it, seats in Parliament, although not very many of them. Um, but in the end, none not really turned yes. out to be. Which um, also means yeah. that the f- former president, the other former president, mm-hmm. Sargasen is back. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But in the end, it's not turned out to be. Um, it's it's not turned out to be very close at all. Um, I think 
Kotiran is kind of remembered as it has kind of remembered this uh, sort of uh, uh, position on sort of security issues. And his time in office was a period of economic growth for Armenia, but he's also seen as perhaps one of the originators of the kind of uh, years of kind of corrupt oligarchic rule as well. Mm. Um, he is not, yeah, has not the best democratic record, and is um, the the ish the story of how, um, which is quite an incredible story really of how he, had, um, his bodyguards, uh, it's disputed how much um, info direct how much he had directly ordered them to do this, um, killed a man in a cafe who had said. Uh, who was apparently an old school friend. This is while he was president. He was an old school friend of of, of Kocharans who greeted him by saying, hi, Rob. And that was viewed as kind of insulting because of his stature as president. And uh, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Um, so that this still kind of clouds his character and was obviously his yeah. kind of security um, uh, credentials, not enough to persuade voters that he was ready for a comeback. Yeah, there's a, um, a very good um, interview with an Armenian political scientist in English on um, a YouTube channel called CivilNet, which I have to run across, and where he basically said that this election in some ways is the kind of final consolidation of the revolution, in that mm -hmm. what you've essentially ended up with is an election between um, the new regime, in face of Pateran and the old regime in terms of um, Kotran and um, and Sagasin's um, parties and mm -hmm. the new regime has won despite all the problems that come up with but it shouldn't be seen so much as a victory for Pateran as so much as a rejection of the old regime um, which yeah I think rings true um, mm -hmm. so it'll be interesting to see if new forces begin to emerge um, in in the next years, yeah. Um, but yeah, for now, that seems to be the kind of fight that's happening. Yeah, especially because um, <clears throat> Pashinyan is like he obviously has by far the best democratic credentials of of his of everyone running in this. Um, mm. But his his language in this and the rhetoric of this campaign has been. Um, reasonably like vitriolic in, in quite a lot of places and slightly he's called for like um vendettas against opponents in the civil service and mm. other parties as well um and yes yeah. yeah his kind of claim that um he kind of wanted to ask asked voters i think the phrase was to to replace the yes to replace the velvet mandate of 2018 with a steel one um, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's I think he's kind of he's an interesting kind of politician, which I think we're seeing emerge more and more in kind of post-communist states. Essentially, a kind of liberal populist, um, someone who is very vitriolic against the traditional elite, um, and th th that has dominated since the fall of communism, uh, but whose kind of primary goals are essentially liberal ones it's a kind of interesting way and it kind of makes sense given the kinds of countries that like a country like armenia like populists frequently exploit language which is very vitriolic against regime types suggests that the elites are 
out of touch or you know working for their own interests arguably in a country like Armenia that's true <laughs> um, so you can kind of see how that works out uh, and you know his support is very working class it's very rural which is one of the proposed reasons why the polling might have missed how much support he would get in the end so yeah all that kind of makes sense in a certain level one of the interesting things that i see just you know quickly glancing at the at the results is that despite being a pr closed list system which is um and i guess districts of like you know regular size districts the seats are i mean the proportion of votes versus seats isn't is kind of um it doesn't have such a such a close correspondence. And I guess that that's because of the 5% threshold, right? There are mm. six um, parties. And so like civil contract got 54% of the vote, but 72% of the, of the seat, 72 seats, which in a 101 parliament um, is about 72%, right? Armenia Alliance got 21% of votes and then 27 seats. I'm guessing this is because several, like three, three of the parties didn't reach the threshold. And therefore, the the yeah the allocation yeah. of seats is based on the on the three parties that did pass the threshold, right? So. Yeah, and and a couple of them narrowly missed out as mm. well. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't there were nine parties that gained over one percent of the okay. vote, which didn't pass the threshold. Yeah, um, right. including this um, prosperous Armenia, which um, was been represented in the parliament for quite a long time. Um, to mm. the point, it used to be one of the. Um, in kind of the pre-Velvet Revolution days, was was one of the one of the larger parties, um, although also something of a, a kind of oligarchs party. Um, yeah, and I I've, think you pointed out before, Chris. Yeah, what the, which, yeah, which is interesting because the, the, the oligarch in question went to jail last year. Yes, he's also <laughs> he's also why it's also sometimes I believe sometimes seen as possibly a a, a possibly actually connected to Kachuran himself mm. in terms of um, the oligarch in question was also one of his business partners. <laughs> um, he, he, um, and so there was a lot of suggestion in the past that actually Kachuran was its secret leader, um, even while also being the leader of the Republican Party. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of thing that can happen in mm-hmm. these kinds of regimes as you know, Russian parties you know, there's always a lot of debate at what extent the opposition parties in inverted commas in Russia are actually fronts for Putin. But um, yeah, it's, it's certainly, it, there's certainly connections going on there. Prosperous Armenia has always been a a party that's been very willing to do business with Kochlan at the very least, even while coming second. I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting result in terms of the fact that Pashiran's um, biggest weakness is usually considered to be national security as well. So, like, um, he was elected in the first place despite his national security uh, credentials rather than because of them in a country which, at the end of the day, um, has essentially been in conflict since it became independent in 1991. Um so the fact that he has continued to win, I think, is a demonstration that Armenians are ultimately focused on internal reform 
more than whether they get to hold Nagorno Karabakh. And he and you know the the conflict isn't really over per se. Azerbaijan is has literally been threatening to invade Armenia proper mm. so that it can have basically there's an exclave just the other side of Armenia, um, which you know they would quite like to have a direct route to, ideally. Um, and, and also a direct road through to Turkey as well, which I think yes. is the, the yes, part, the part exclave, of Turkey's kind of... Um, yes, the exclave borders well. Turkey. Mm. So, yes. And, and in fact, it's an interesting thing as as Kocaran, um as Kocaran came into Armenian politics through Nagorno-Karabakh, the president of Azerbaijan was actually the former president of the exclave um so yeah there's it's a yeah complex part of the world um if anyone wants to know whose fault it, that all these complex borders are um blame joe stalin um, <laughs> who and his nationalities policy which he decided go oh, i'll just create an autonomous republic within um uh, the country for his Aries, and also an exclave the other side of armenia which will create no future problems <laughs> um, well they were all going to be part of the soviet union forever exactly. and ever and ever, and ever exactly. so we're just looking yeah. about it um yeah yeah yeah, that, that system was premised on the idea that ethnic divisions would disappear as kind of everyone merged into this kind of same sort of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I, having listened to you and, and, you know, the little I've read from Armenia, let's, you know, kind of pushes me towards thinking, how can democracy, electoral democracy survive under these intense pressures, a very small country surrounded by either hostile or extremely powerful neighbors in, in a hostile neighborhood. Um, it's, quite, it's quite shocking, it's quite surprising and it's, it's interesting to follow. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, one thing I, I think is certainly the power of the diaspora, which is mm. huge and very active and and quite powerful in politics around the world in some places as well. So, for example, France has had a president, it has had a prime minister in the 1990s. He was from the Armenian diaspora, you know, and you know, um, California has had a governor from the Armenian, and, you know, the Kardashian family, for instance, um, of <laughs> our Armenian diaspora. Um, it's about twice as many ethnic Armenians outside Armenia as there are inside it. And some of them are very rich and powerful. And, you know, that, one of the things that I could see when I was visiting Armenia in 2013, which I'll be, is a long time ago, but for example, when you're thinking about, like, you're going down, a, a you know, as in most post-communist states, you have very nice roads and then you have terrible roads. And like, and the, it almost seems to be random which you're driving on for any kind of period of time. But the very nice roads are almost all being sponsored by the diaspora. Like mm. the money is coming from outside the state. <laughs> um, so th that that gives them a major sway in internal politics. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's certainly part of it because a lot of those people would like Armenia to be a successful democratic state. Mm. Um, yeah, and you can see the, the 
you can see this with kind of France's, especially kind of foreign policy pronouncements on the region, is that especially since the, especially I think since the war, um, it has become, um, it has become quite forthright in its criticism of Azerbaijan, and uh, and Macron has made statements and some occasions yeah. of saying that he will provide military support even if Armenia is attacked and things like this. Um, yeah, yeah, because France has quite a big the diaspora there. Yeah, France has quite a big di- diaspora. Um, yeah, and and also like Armenia needs allies wherever it can get them. Um, and Azerbaijan, like Azerbaijan, however authoritarian Armenia ever was. Azerbaijan is worse, oh, yes. <laughs> much worse. <laughs> Azerbaijan is a incredibly authoritarian, mm. corrupt kleptocracy. Um, so yeah, it, in those terms, it it makes it more black and white. Even though the conflict isn't really black and white. Okay, Good so point. thank you everyone for listening. See, you. join us next week where we'll be talking about um, the French regional elections um, with a kind of probably a special focus on Corsica, I think, and the uh, the New York Democratic primary and lots of loody things about um, alternative vote, rank choice voting, instant runoff voting, whatever the hell you want to call it. We'll be <laughs> explaining it to you next week. All yeah. right, bye everyone.